So in the in the course of our uh, of our day, um, there's a whole bunch of different things that we experience and different ways that we're experiencing them. But when we experience things through our sense um, faculties, our nervous system is fairly used to looking at sense data in terms of. It, Something out there is coming in here. So when we look at sight, for example, the way that our brain tends to interpret that information is is that there's an object out there. And it's related to me here. So the the normal way that our our eyes um, see things and then the brain processes that information is spatially and subject-object in terms of I'm here and seeing that there. <clears throat> so the, the sense of self that arises in that context arises because of the normal way that our perceptions are operating. And the same, you know, the body is here, your body is there. You know, there's a sense of that I can, I, I move my arm through space to touch you out there. There's a <coughs> sense of of having to, that that's what actually happens with our sense contact, our sense world. And with with sound as well. And we can move sound, the the capacity to listen and direct attention so that we can listen to sounds that are internal, sounds that are external, and sounds that are out of the space, that are actually out in nature. So we can direct our attention to, like, sense of distance in where we're looking at sound. And the nervous system, it's, uh, it's, actually, it's actually a useful thing that the nervous system can do that because if we weren't able to organize the sense input that we were getting, um, our system would just be constantly overwhelmed all the time. So, you know, Sharon Beckman Brindley comes from a clinical psycho- psychology background, 30 years of private practice, and one of the pieces of information she shared on the Love, Sex, Sexuality, and Awakening retreat was this is that, mm, I'm not remembering the numbers, 100 billion neurons, 100 billion nerve cells, 10,000 10, neurons, every one of them can have a different connection. Which basically what that means is, is, is that if we had no systems to organize the input that we had, our system would be completely 
flooded with uh, chaos. We wouldn't have any capacity to make sense out of it. So the fact that we have language and that we can label things and that we can take, tell stories about what happened or, you know, <clears throat> that I was here and I was walking and I went through um, the woods and I ended up at the temple and the, I opened the door and I walked inside and I saw these murals and then I left a different door and so I could narrate a story making sense out of the things that I experienced to give some kind of a approximation about what it was that I did and how I got there and describe it to somebody else so that they could follow in my footsteps and make sense out of what I'm saying. So this is all extremely useful because if we didn't have the capacity to name and to language and to describe and have a sense of time and a sense of distance and, you know, descriptions, the whole thing would be an immersive mess and we wouldn't be able to communicate what's happened or make sense out of it. And so if we had no language, you know, every time we encountered a tree, it would be a completely brand new experience. We'd have no name for it. We wouldn't know really what it was. And to a system that's just overwhelming, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to process that. So the self arising out of that and the time-space distances that arise out of that are useful in a relative world and useful in being able to communicate with people about what's going on. But when we put a microscope under those things and really begin to look at what's going on, the kind of um, the, uh, the absolute nature of it starts to fall away in terms of you know, so when we're sitting and facing each other and doing inside dialogue, you know, sometimes, I don't know if any of you experienced that today, but sometimes you can drop into a space where you just get a feeling of presence and it's not so clear where you begin and end, where the other person begins and ends. There's a shared space that is very rich between the two of you and somebody's speaking, somebody's listening, but what sometimes is really the strongest is that kind of the field of awareness between the two of you. So when you dial a microscope into what's actually going on, then sometimes the language that we have starts to fall apart in terms of being accurate in the same way that when we look at an egg, you know, most people would say it's, it's not a lie to say that an egg is smooth, you know, it's smooth. But if you put an egg, like just a regular egg, you know, the kind of eggs we've been eating for breakfast, you know, those kind of eggs, if you put an egg under a microscope, you begin to see that what was apparently smooth with our eye under a microscope is not smooth. And then you dial up the microscopic lens on it, and it becomes not only not smooth, but just like, you know, huge changes in the surface texture. And then when you turn it onto an electron microscope, what you get is something that's completely unrecognizable to the naked eye. So in meditation, it's like turning up the microscope lens. Yeah. And so we are beginning to perceive things in a way which is really different from our ordinary perceptions. But the way that we're seeing things is actually more in accordance with reality than the naked eye or the naked sense contact or the habitual tendency of the way we're interpreting things. Yeah. So <clears throat> the self arises because of the nature of the way that our nervous system is wired up and our habits and the conditioning that we have, and it's actually a really useful thing that it does. And so, you know, one of the like 
things that we notice when we're living in a monastery in a community is, is that it was really um, it was not a blessing at all when people would come to the monastery and they didn't have a strong sense of self. In fact, alarm bells were like registering with like flashing, you know. And, you know, if somebody was in a state of absolute dissolved sense of self, they had no sense of self. It was like it was not, it was, they were in an absolute crisis and it needed severe intervention. So, as a meditation practice and as a mystical transcendent experience to understand that is different than the kind of psychological chaos that a person can be in when they haven't, um, either developed a strong sense of self or when the, strong, or the sense of self has somehow collapsed because of other pressures, right? But when we look at it from a kind of like dialed in with a really strong microscope, you know, what is present is sense contact. There's sensation and then there's feeling and then there's, you know, there's perceptions and there's thoughts, but there isn't... There isn't a, a cohesive, permanent, lasting thing to whom all of this stuff is related to. So the stories that we tell ourselves about what's going on is useful to shape and make sense out of it. But when we look at it in terms of what's actually happening, the story is not what's happening. You know, what's actually happening are these moments of experience. So the sense of self has somehow gotten like solidified or hardwired or kind of like locked into like the way in which we're interpreting our information. And that is a useful but limited structure. And so when we can see that, you know, a self is, is, is vulnerable, is, has a very narrow bandwidth of what it can tolerate in terms of heat and cold and hunger and thirst and um, lack of contact and too much con- I mean, the bandwidth of what is comfortable for a self is actually extraordinarily narrow. And most of us spend our life kind of like battling that bandwidth to try and make sure that it's protected, that we have what we need, that we're comfortable, that we don't have stuff impinging on it that's not okay, and that that's how we feel safe. And there's a, there's a whole, I mean, there's a, there's a validity in taking care of the conditioned world so that we're not just doing things that are uh, hurting ourselves or extreme. But it's fascinating when you start meditating to, to, to see that that bandwidth is actually quite a lot more flexible than you would imagine and to um, begin to see that things are not as they appear. So, like an example of that. I've had a variety of different health problems for a, a quite a number of years, and one of the things that was quite strong for very many years is I had chronic fatigue syndromes, and one of the things that would trigger a relapse is if I stressed my system, and one of the things that really stressed my system was sleep deprivation. So if I had a lot of no sleep, that was like a setup for a, a relapse, and a relapse, well, at the time was was like, it wasn't like a day and a half. It was like three to six months of really not feeling, feeling terrible. So I was in the bush in Australia, and there was a Korean nun there. And the Koreans have um, practices around determination that would make us, like, just roll our eyes. I mean, what they do is just extraordinary in terms of making decisions that they're going to do a particular practice and staying with it. 
So she was going to be doing tiger practice, which is a practice of sitting up and not sleeping. And this was going to go on for 10 days or a week. I can't remember. And I don't know why, but there was something in me that was compelled and curious and interested, and I wanted to try it. But I was also really scared because if I pushed my way through, I was setting myself up for a relapse, and it was likely it was going to take six months for it to recover. And so I didn't want to set myself up for a six-month relapse, but I didn't want to just duck and say, I can't do it, because that didn't feel fun. <laughs> so I negotiated. I want to play, but I want to play so that if my system is crashing, I can I can duck out. Is that going to be okay? And she said, yeah, it'll be all right. So I knew, I absolutely knew, I totally knew, that if I tried to push my way through this, muscle my way through this, I was dead. That was never going to work for me. I was going to have to find another way. But I knew also that there might be another way, but I wasn't sure I knew how. So I was going to try, but I wasn't sure. So, you know, tiger practice, you think this is intense. Oh, my goodness. You know, we were sitting, boy, 18 hours a day, not sleeping, not lying down. I mean, I felt like I was giving birth to a whale. My hips are so much. <laughs> I mean, it was just the, the physical pain was extraordinary. But what was also happening was is that I wasn't pushing. I was just, every time I would get up to a wall, I'd soften around it and breathe into it and relax through it. And, you know, I'd have, I'd, I found my way. And to my surprise, which is one of the things that seems to always amaze me about practice, was rather than getting sick, for the first time in 10 years, I was completely symptom-free for like a period of three months. And it was like, there's no way, there's just simply no way that I would have been able to imagine that that would have been a possible result from doing something as insane as that. I just would have never figured it out. What I figured out was that one of the stressors for the relapse was fear. And what I was doing was confronting fear. So I had to confront the fear in a way where I wasn't pushing my way through it like a rhinoceros, but I was actually completely confronting the fear. And in confronting the fear and staying with it and breathing through it, the fear released. And as the fear released, a huge stressor released. And as the huge stressor released, I was completely symptom-free for three months. So one of the weird things about meditation is if you are really practicing with absolute sincerity, sometimes the results are not imaginable. That has happened to me more times than I have fingers and toes to count, you know, about stuff like that. So myself had constructed all kinds of ideas about what I could and could not do and and believe them. They were my story. This is my story, and I am sticking to it. And yet the practice took me into a situation where I was willing to play those edges in quite a significant way. And in doing it with skill, so I wasn't being irresponsible or unresponsive, then what happened was is, is that I could see that that story actually didn't hold weight in the way that I thought it did. 
And as that story dissolved, the fear that was constructed around it dissolved, and there was something that opened and released as a result. Does that help? In terms of the difference between narrow concentration and opening awareness, We, we're working with focusing on objects, you know, so you take the object and you focus on the object. But even while I'm focusing on the object, I can be focusing on the object and opening up my attention so that I can see the periphery, so I can see the people who are sitting in the corner, even though my eyes are focused here, okay? Now, if I zero in to this cup, like really zero in, then I'm not seeing anybody that's around. So... <clears throat> depending on the way in which I'm focusing on the cup depends on my capacity to pick up the kind of stuff that's going around. Now, when I really soft focus, like really soft focus, then I see the cup, I see the people, I hear the sounds, and my peripheral vision extends beyond the people and is actually in the space around so that I can see the walls and all the rest of that. So I'm not focused <clears throat> on the cup, but the cup is in awareness, is in focus. So it's I am seeing the cup, but I'm not dialing down into the cup. Now, when we um, focus on our bodies, we can focus on a particular part. We can focus on our hands, on our face, on our arms, on our legs. We can focus on our breathing. And when we focus on that, usually nothing else is apparent. <clears throat> we can also widen the focus, the field, so that we're aware of the whole body and aware of something that arises within it. So that that can be something like an experience of a popcorn container where the field is the whole body and then the sensations that are just coming are like pieces of popcorn that are just popping up all over the place. So I'm not located on one particular, I'm not dialed in, I'm opened up. Now, when we do like big mind practices or resting in awareness practices or dissolving, dissolving practices, but there's still awareness, <clears throat> The experience is, is that the experience of the body dissolves. The experience of the mind and the mental constructs dissolve. But there is a resting in something which is bright and luminous, even though there are no apparent objects that one is aware of. Now, what I find so wonderful about that is that when I am working with an object which is hard to be with, which often for me is emotion, fear or overwhelm or grief or um, uncertainty or something like that. And it's, <clears throat> it's so strong that it's overwhelming to my system. I have a, a limited capacity in how much I, as a self, have the capacity to focus on the object and work with it. 
partly as a result of the stories that I have told myself about who I am and what my capacities are. Part of it is based on the tendencies that I have and the karmic configurations that I bring to this. Part of it has to do with the level of concentration that I'm able to navigate. But as a subject focusing on an object, I have a limited scope in how much I can focus and how much I can release tension related to that object. When I let body and mind dissolve, which is one of the things that happens regularly when I go into the garden of the gods, is I just drop and let it dissolve. Then there isn't a me holding an it, there's just awareness. And awareness is unbounded in its capacity. And so I have taken like huge things, absolutely my ginormous things, things that were completely overwhelming and totally outside of my capacity as an individual person to handle or cope or wrap my mind around or get any sense of perspective on and dropped into this spacious awareness where I'm not initially feeling my body and there isn't initially any sense of mind, of perception or formations. But there is a brightness of knowing. And in that brightness of knowing, there is no limit to what is capable of being held and known. And I, when the sense of body reforms, it feels like of, like of dropping in and then a, a re-coalescing of the body and mind then what happens is is that that object, which from an individual separate self was, in, was too big to navigate, becomes completely not an issue. And that's lovely. Because it's like the problem dissolves. Now, how that actually happens... I don't know. I'd have to take you into the garden of the gods and do it with you and see if you could feel with me what is actually happening. It's not only the garden of the gods, but there's something about that place which is really powerful and it's inducing of that state. I've been in other powerful places that also induces it. And sometimes in meditation we can just drop into that and feel that. In a, you know, in a, When this practice is really strong, we can just drop into it. The mechanisms of what actually is happening in that I can't delineate more clearly than what I've said. But what I do know is, is, is that I, when I, when I, the body mind recoalesces after that, it's, there are no problems. There are no problems. Nothing is a problem. Nothing is a problem. And that's an amazing thing because before all kinds of things were problems. You know, a million problems, 10 million problems, 100 million billion problems. There were so many problems. But in that state, there are no problems. And it's just incredible to come into that space where nothing is an issue or a problem. There's no, there's no, nothing is too big. Nothing is overwhelming. Nothing, there's no resistance. It's all known. It's not like I'm rejecting anything. But I'm not trying to deal with it as a separate entity, as a subject relating to an object. 
Now, obviously, that's not my like permanent state of being. So I come back and things coalesce and then I get... <gasps> it is too big. It is impossible. It is not. You know, I get agitated again because I re-experience it from the perspective of me trying to sort it out or fix it or attend to it or relate to it. And from that perspective, it seems too much. And so then I go into strategy, which is either busy or thinking or distracting or suppressing or controlling, whatever my strategies are at the moment, you know. Fixing, spiritualizing, whatever it is. You know, I've got many strategies. But none of them are effective in actually solving the problem. They're just like band-aids, like on the Titanic. (laughs) Which is all right to have a band-aid on the Titanic, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. And this seems to kind of put me in a space where there's no problem. What it is, how to get there, I haven't developed more language yet about it, you know. But what I just know is, is that I come out of that and it is profoundly restorative and deeply um, imbuing of confidence and a sense of, of well-being and okayness. And that's good. And that I have no doubt about. That is good. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is that a state then that you can call upon? Call, or can you choose to go into that state? Or is that just a state that arises when it arises? Um... It almost always arises when I go to the Garden of the Gods. Mm -hmm. So when I go to the Garden of the Gods, that's almost always where I go. I don't have as easy access to it out of that space, but I'm getting better at it. So I'm getting a little bit more access to it in other circumstances, but it's not as immediate. Like in the Garden of the Gods, it takes seconds, and I just drop into that. So, yes, it would be good to be able to have access to that wherever. And until I do, it's like I'm hanging out with the Garden of the Gods. (laughs) You know, until that's stable and a place that I have easy, direct access to at request, then I'm hanging out near the Garden of the Gods. It's like incredible. It's, yeah. And is that the same thing that people refer to when they say transcendental meditation? Or not necessarily? Who knows what people are saying when they're talking about transcendental <laughs> <laughs> You know. Yeah, Zara? I don't know if I'm the only one, but where is the Garden of the Gods? The Garden of the Gods is just a few minutes' walk from where I live in Colorado Springs. And it's, um, it's a rock formation, and it's very beautiful. But more than very beautiful, it's, it, it's very powerful. 
And so, you know, the First Nations people used it as a gathering place for thousands of thousands of years because it's a very powerful, very sacred place. Now, it's not only the Garden of the Gods. I've experienced this in other places. Like, Aranachala is also like that. And, you know, there are power places on land that have that effect where it's just something that opens your mind and you can... Strong things happen in your meditation as a result. It just happens that this place is 10 minutes from my door, (laughs) which makes it convenient. Yeah. Yeah, Ali? What you were saying, I don't know if I'm going to phrase this, if you can maybe... You know, speak to it more. And you were saying that bandwidth of self, and then when there's a no self, the bandwidth gets expanded. Am I correct by saying that, that, you know, in the nature, the law of expansion and contraction, after that no self comes, and then the contraction begins, it becomes a more solidified self. And then, am I confused? Or, you know, the, in the nature, we have the expansion, yeah. and then contraction follows that. Yeah. So when the bandwidth gets bigger, uh, no self, and then one does stuff that's out of, you know, normally wouldn't do, then after that, by that law, then uh, the self also solidifies, and then maybe it doesn't go back to the original size, but it also solidifies and becomes smaller, and then also bigger, and then smaller. Am I correct? Well, I mean, that seems to be part of what I experience and other people experience is that there's a sense of, of, of permeability and like and shifting in the sense of where, like, wh- where the parameters of the self are. And that shifts, it expands, and then it shifts and it contracts. But you're using, like, the laws of thermodynamics to the world of the, of the mind, and I don't know that the math is, is translatable. I don't know that... That, that you can you can say that any time something expands, it's going to contract, and therefore any time you have a an opening, that it's going to necessarily get smaller. It doesn't necessarily work that way. But what I have I have seen is is that this stuff does. I have not arrived at a place where there's a permanent open, and I don't know that there's that that actually. Well, you know, there are people who are. When Ramana Maharshi talks about his awakening experience, he talked about there was, he, when he was 16 years old, he had the sense that he was dying, even though he knew that that was not physically what was actually happening. He just went with it. And in going with it, he allowed his imagination to fill up with what the death process would be and to let his attention rest where what didn't die and once that happened for the rest of his life until he died when he was 80 years old he never contracted back into that sense of a self that held himself as separate never now that is a rare story it doesn't happen very often that there's a like one big huge thing that happens and it's finished it's totally finished. There's no more work to be done. With most people, there can be genuine enlightenment experiences and still um, issues around integration and expansion and contraction. And so 
you know, one of the books I love is Jack Cornfield's book. It's, you know, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And he interviews meditation masters who've had genuine enlightenment experiences and then go into therapy afterwards because they've got issues that the enlightenment experience didn't sort out. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's human, and that's what happens, is, is that we can have profound, absolutely transformative insight, and there's still places that need work to integrate that and to release the kind of <clears throat> hardwiring that got stuck somewhere in the system. So there was self and there was open and close awareness. There was also love, sex, and awakening in the bear. What else was there? <laughs> was that it? Was that it? And letting go, okay. Love, sex, and awakening is a huge topic. You know, that's the topic for a book, and that's one of the things that I'm working on over the winter time. And part of the reason why it's such a huge topic is because each of these themes, love, sex, and awakening, is a spectrum. They're not a single individual thing. They're actually a spectrum. So the spectrum of love includes the kinds of things where we can uh, experience a friendliness with another person or we can experience the relationships with a mother or a child. It's the kind of thing that we can experience when there's intimacy with an individual or sexual intimacy with an individual. It also includes the kind of experiences of when there is no sense of <clears throat> sexual arousal but just a deep heart connection and a kind of selflessness so <clears throat> in the spiritual context of love you know when that is opening up for a person then there's a sense of being in union without uh, any kind of sexual uh, arousal or imagery connected to it okay now that spectrum overlaps with the spectrum of sexuality because the intimacy or the longing for intimacy is often something that is evocative of wanting to engage sexually. And what has been <clears throat> an interesting exploration for me is, is, is that when a person as an adult falls in love, part of what they are falling in love with is the person that they're in love with. And part of what they're falling in love with is actually their own unmet needs that never got met when they were a child. And so then you open up this whole other spectrum of, okay, there's love and there's sexuality. And then that opens up this huge spectrum of early childhood development and how our bodies and minds configure around particular ways of relating. And so when there's a feeling of real closeness with another person, then oftentimes what happens is, is that we're, we're navigating between all of these different layers that get um, activated. And so for one second, we're in love with the other person. And for the next second, we're longing for the contact that we didn't get met when we were an infant. And to be awake enough to actually follow what's going on is not common. And so part of the reasons why relationships can be complicated is because it looks like you've got two adults that are relating to each other, but oftentimes you've got two two-year-olds that are relating to each other. 
And to move from an adult to a two-year-old in a second without actually having any warning takes a little bit of, like, uh, organization internally, right? And if you've got two two-year-olds then acting with adult kind of behavior, it's very often the case that it, it doesn't, they don't end up playing very nicely together. <laughs> Because there's no adult supervising. So you've got two kids that are meeting their needs to get met without actually anybody really tracking what's going on and communicating it. So that opens up this whole huge spectrum of early childhood development, how that plays into the world of sexuality and desire and attraction and all the rest of that. Okay. Now, then we open up the field of awakening, which is also enormous. And so there is awakening to what is. There's awakening to our relationship with what is. There's awakening to the experience of suffering in what is, of releasing the suffering that what is, and releasing the sense of self that this all of this is happening to. Now, these themes of love and the theme of sexuality and the theme of awakening are broad spectrums that overlap. And so in our world, and particularly in our spiritual world, it's often the case that these things are not discussed. And so it's, it's rare, it's extremely rare that you can come on a retreat and have a candid conversation about sexuality or love that talks about the whole facets of these of this spectrum it's usually a very narrow bandwidth or like if you're on a retreat you know basically the only conversation about sex is don't okay so that's the extent of the conversation and then the topic is closed well great i mean that's great wonderful (laughs) It makes it very clear and defined for being on retreat in terms of what's allowed. But in terms of bringing awareness and consciousness into this part of one's life, which for many people is a really important part of their life, and that's true whether or not they're sexually engaged or they're not, whether they're sexually active or not. The whole world of our sexuality, our arising of this longing to merge with another person and this spectrum of desire, longing for emotional closeness, the longing for a union, with, which, which is a union of, of heart independent of physicality, is part of what happens as a human being. And because there's very little context to talk about this stuff in a spiritual container, then what is focused on is usually a very narrow bandwidth in terms of love means this and it's this wide, you know? And awakening means this and it's this wide, but the, it's like it's not, it's not all of it. It's not the whole human being and every facet of the human being and all of its different components and the richness and the messiness and the, and the wonderfulness and the confusion of it. It's not all of that because that's too much. So we focus it on these places that we can handle and that make sense in a context where there's a bunch of people coming together. And, and that, that serves very well. But it doesn't serve well enough so that the whole person ends up being able to be integrated by the narrowness of the bandwidths which are actually discussed and allowed. And for me, it has been a topic of tremendous interest 
partly because of my own personal circumstances and the things that I've lived through and the kundalini energy that I've had to deal with since I was a teenager and not having people that I can talk to about it and how all this stuff kind of crisscrosses and relates to each other. It's all related. So for me, it has been of real importance. And so it's been a study, you know, for decades now. And the study has shown me some really interesting things. Again, you know, it's not as you think it is. And so I didn't realize that when a, when a person falls in love, there's only a small percentage of their falling in love that actually has to do with the other person. <laughs> I mean, we'd have to check each person out and each relationship out to actually figure out how much is there. But when I was observing myself falling in love with this kind of dialed-in microscopic vision, it was shocking how much it had to do with unmet childhood needs and how little of it had to do with the other person. But that was also really uh, revealing for me because, you know, one of the things which is a real challenge for people who are committed to a life of celibacy is how to navigate all of this territory and stay sane and healthy, you know? Not we're just suppressing it and cutting it off and throwing it out the window, but actually staying awake to it and channeling it. And when I could see that the longing for sexual union had a lot to do with wanting to get unmet childhood needs attended to, then I had a way that I could focus my attention where I could self-regulate and stay celibate and work through these longings that was actually responsive, not irresponsive. And not saying, oh, I'm too spiritual, I'm just going to transcend all of this stuff, but actually really dialed in really dialed in to what is needed here and how can I bring attention to it. And then when I was able to do that, it wasn't as if my heart turned to stone. It's the opposite. But I wasn't looking for others to meet those needs in myself because I could see how to direct attention there myself. So it's a it's huge it's a huge topic and then that's one part of it and then there's the part of it of how this is related to trauma both around the topic of love and the topic of sexuality and how that affects the experience of awakening it's a big topic so but to me it's an important topic because it's like our life force is connected to all of these things and if we don't actually understand it in a way where there's some um, vitality and aliveness and responsiveness, then for, as far as I'm concerned, there's no chance that we're going to be able to be free. And, you know, I don't know how all of this works in a man's body, but I know in a woman's body, or at least in my body, you know, sexuality has is so deep, but it actually touches so many different parts it has to do not just with physical pleasure and release, but it has to do with the capacity to receive and to give. And so if it's not healthy, the relationship with sexuality is not healthy, then the capacity to give and receive is also not healthy. My life force is not healthy. I mean, it's huge. It has a huge impact. And so for me, this is like, this is not just like a hobby. <laughs> 
You know, this is like, how do I live this life in a way that's whole, alive, and healthy? Anyway, a summary. So when we talk about that in terms of letting go, certainly letting go has also many different components to it. And one of the things that letting go is letting go of harmful choices about our behaviors. And so I feel so happy when I hear people who are, you know, they're coming clean or they're getting sober or they recognize that there's a need for staying sober. Because when they're not sober, when they're not clean, you know, when they're using substances, it, it, it tilts the balance so much so in a way that it's really difficult to um, do this work. Uh, some people have issues with anger. And, you know, the fuse goes and they are explosive and the explosions are really destructive. And when people get a uh, like an insight into like not wanting to do that and start trying to figure out how to hold rein in so that they're not just blowing up when they get <clears throat> agitated. There's a letting go of a particular kind of behavior which has a detrimental effect on self and others. That's one kind of letting go, which has to do with creating safety and keeping precepts and making clear choices about not wanting to harm. There's another kind of letting go which has to do with the letting go of the emotional constructs that we tell ourselves about who we are. So we all have stories about who we are and what we have been through. And some of it are nice stories and some of it are terrible stories. And we cling to these stories because it shapes who we are. So our identity is connected to our story. And it doesn't mean that the story didn't happen. But when we tenaciously cling to our story, we are defining ourselves by circumstances which are not alive and present in the present moment. We're defining ourselves by something that happened in the past. As we let go of the story, or the investment in the story, then we are more able to be responsive to what's going on in the present without the impact of the past conditioning what it is that we see or what it is that we think or what it is that we say. Now, something happened recently that was just very interesting to me because it was just classic. There's some people that I know and have known for a long time, and there's been some stuff that's happened under the water bridge, you know, water under the bridge that has made it so that the relationship and communication has not been easy. In fact, it's been very fraught. And there have been many times where I've been trying to bridge that and make it easier. And so I made a gesture of, you know, wanting to come and wanting to talk and wanting to do something. And they 
asked me a question about whether I was going to be with them or whether I was going to be someplace else. And I responded, I had very clearly in my mind, for me it was completely clear in my mind that I was saying, I can't be in two places at once. Because I had said that I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with you. But because in their mind, they had seen me as preferring to be with the other person, and because the way that I answered didn't actually delineate specifically that I hadn't chosen the other person, they still didn't know if I was going to be there. Because the story of what had happened in the past was still reinterpreting what was going on in the present and making it from that perspective. They weren't actually listening to what it was that I'd said. They were thinking about what they thought in the past and using that instead. So one let of letting go is the letting go of unhelpful behavior. Another letting go is letting go of story and constructs that we tell about ourselves, that we tell about each other. <clears throat> Another layer of letting go is letting go of identification with anything. Now, <clears throat> This is not kind of like um, kindergarten practice because to let go of everything without having really clear foundation or a place to rest in puts us back into that space that we don't want to go where they scoop us up and take us to the psychiatric institute, okay? But when there is the foundation, when there is the ground, when there is a solid sense of refuge, when there's a clear commitment to precepts and an understanding of what that is, Letting go into groundlessness when there is the ground to hold that then allows the dissolution of the separate sense of self to happen. And when there is no separate sense of self, there's no fear. So Ajahn Shah said, if you let go a little, there'll be a little bit of peace. If you let go a lot, there will be a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, there will be complete peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.